Welcome to Teacher Quit Talk. I'm Miss Redacted. And I'm Mrs. Frazzled. Every week we explore the teacher exodus to find out what, if anything, could get these educators back in the classroom. We've all had our moments where we thought, what the hell am I doing here? From burnout to bureaucracy to soul-sucking stressors and creative dead ends. From recognizing when it was time to go to navigating feelings of guilt and regret afterwards, we're here to cut out the gaslighting and get real about what it means to leave teaching. We've got insights from former teachers from all over the country who have seen it all. So get ready to be disturbed. Join us on Teacher Quit talk to laugh through the pain of the U.S. education system. We'll see you there. Hi, I'm Frances Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of the Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay. Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. Дамы и господа, добро пожаловать в Prevail. Это второй сезон нашей борьбы с криминальными сволочами. Ваш ведущий Грере Олиар. I'm Greg Oliar. This is Prevail. Welcome to the program. We've got a great show. Despite the fact that I'm on hiatus for a couple weeks, I'm actually going to spend the next three weeks um, scouring my property for classified documents. So we are going to rerun an excellent interview I did with Bryn Tannehill, author of American Fascism, How the GOP is Subverting Democracy. This ran on May 15th. You might have listened to it. You might not have. It's worth a re-listen. It's a great discussion. We'll be right back with Bryn Tannehill. Chevy Chase Where lives Brett Kavanaugh And they say It's room To protest there It will soon Be against The law His father Was A lobbyist down payment at least that's what we all assume now the only thing a gambler needs is a bookie and a hunch watch the game at Chevy Chase Country Club Pictures of beer at lunch Mm -hmm. 
mother, sell your children, boost the domestic infant supply, your uterus is owned by the state, and they don't care if you die. Where leaves bread cabin all We'll walk the streets of Chevy Chase Till Rome is set along Brent Tannehill, welcome to the Prevail Podcast. Thank you. It's great to be on. You have written uh, a book called American Fascism, which is fantastic. It's it, it's um I'm 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 upbeat about it. It's such a wonderful look at <laughs> at how we're losing our democracy. No, but um it's basically this sweeping history uh, about how we got to the to where we are, uh, which is on the precipice, I think. And we'll talk about that in a minute. I think it's a wonderful book. For anybody who wants to go back and just read about the history of this moment and how we got here, I highly encourage uh, you to go buy it and check it out. It's really well written, well researched. It, it, it's great. It's a, it, it's a great uh, achievement. And uh, I congratulate you on it. Thank you very much. I really appreciate th those absolutely kind words. Yeah, I'm not even blowing smoke here either. I, I mean, it. it's really good. Um, so, OK, so a little bit about you. You you. You were, went to the Naval Academy, the Air Force Institute of Technology, and then you were a naval aviator in Kosovo, in the Middle East, and in the North Atlantic. And I'm, I'm thinking about this. I have the only remotely thing that I have in my experience is like I once rented a U-Haul truck in lower Manhattan and drove it over the Queensboro Bridge. And I think <laughs> I don't think it's quite it's quite the same. So what, what was that like flying the airplanes? Oh, gosh. Well, uh, I flew the SH-60B. It's a multi-role helicopter. It's retired now, replaced by the MH-60R. And it's, it was an absolute delight to fly. It was, it, was a, it was a big old helicopter Cadillac, had a gr great integrated sensor system, easy to fly, a lot of fun. I also flew the P-3, big old 50s vintage airliner stuffed full of electronics and sub-hunting gear. It was a little bit more of a bear to fly. It was like driving a bus. But you could take off somewhere and 10 hours later be in someplace really, really interesting. Being in the helicopter, you get on the ship, and maybe 10 days later you might be somewhere interesting. And uh, mm. uh, the payment for being somewhere interesting was spending that time in a 30-year-old uh, destroyer with, with air conditioning that didn't work. Oh God. Okay. Let's update the air conditioning people. So, all right. Um, oh, that ship's retired. It's, it's gone now, but. <laughs> Lots of things are retiring. I think that's a theme <laughs> here. Um, okay. So your book is called American fascism. And I want, I'm wondering why you picked that word. That's fascism is a word that I also use when I'm trying to, I'm trying to tar these fascists mm. with, with a label. And I think that's an effective one, but why did you pick that word specifically? So one of the, 
more influential books that I read on this was uh, Jason Stanley's How Fascism Works, right? And I read that and I went, oh, this is so not good, right? But I was like, well, that's just one guy. This is just one scholar on fascism. And this is also where the genesis of my book, it's part of the genesis of the book, but it's definitely the most influential in the t where the title ended up coming from. So I was okay. So in 2017, I was taking two research paths, one of which was, okay, well, how do we get out of this? On the other one was, well, what is fascism? How does one define fascism? What are the characteristics of fascism? So I turned around and I went and read everything I could on the characteristics of fascism from people who survived it, like Hannah Arendt to uh, Paxton. Uh, I've got a whole list. I'm trying to remember all their names, but there's about seven or eight different names of fascists and scholars. And I went through and I read everything they wrote and I took notes and I created a spreadsheet with the characteristics they listed of, well, what, what is fascism? And then I tried to, uh, Umberto Eco uh, was one of the uh, other prominent ones, his essay on Ur fascism. And I tried to condense it into what are the categories that kind of mesh them together as best I could, and then create a, you know, taxonomy of, okay, well, which source says which characteristic, you know, is, is a characteristic of fascism. And I looked and there was a very, very high degree of overlap. But what you see in the book, the 13 characteristics are the 13 characteristics that this August group of recognized experts in the field all agreed were the characteristics of fascism. And I got done and I went, yep, 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 yep. Oh, definitely. Yep, 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 <laughs> yep, yep, yep. yep. Oh, crap. <laughs> yeah. So, well put. Um, it was, yeah. you know, the, you know, there were some characteristics that we didn't meet, but they tended to be characteristics that uh, weren't unique to fascism or only one or two authors agreed upon, like launching a land war in Asia in the middle of winter. OK, well, that's yeah. a bit specific. Uh, yeah, <laughs> um, I, I agree. I, and, you know, you in the introduction to the book, you quote yourself writing back when, you know, in 2016, 2017, when this took over and you sort of saw the the threat. I went back and looked at, at my book, which I published in, in May of 2018. And I said, Donald Trump is nothing less than a threat to the American way of life. His term in office comprises an existential threat to the Republic, the gravest since the Civil War, not since 1860 has the future of the Union itself been in such doubt. And I remember writing that thinking, this feels really hyperbolic in some degree, and yet it kind of doesn't. Like it sort of blew my mind to, to even have to imagine that. So what were you, what were you thinking when you wrote that? Did, did, were you really convinced that this was happening or were you more like throwing it out as a, God, I hope this doesn't happen, but all signs point to yes. Like what, what was your mental state at that time? So I'm an analyst by nature defense industry, but my previous academic experience is writing about forecasting democratic decline, civil war, and genocide using econometric and social data. And I looked at where we were after the election in 2016, and my thought was, okay, this is really, really bad. If Donald Trump is who we think he is, unless he suddenly turns out to be a much more normal president than we anticipated, than he seems to give indications of, we're going down a very dark path. 
And it also recognized that systematically the GOP holds advantages, structural advantages, whether it's gerrymandering, whether it's non-proportional representation, whether it's controlling rural areas um, rather than urban areas, which makes it easier to do gerrymandering, uh, control of the courts, and looking at how different the outlook of the base of the Republican Party is, which is primarily white evangelicals, or at least they hold a large enough plurality that if white evangelicals say no, a candidate is not going to make it. They're they're not, uh, not going to make it through the primaries. That's why the only place you see sane Republican governors in the two states where uh, Catholics are the the dominant religion, where you've got Maryland and, and Massachusetts. So I looked at it and I knew that was going to be trouble. And I predicted that American cities were going to burn and people are still kind of laughing at me. And now I'm looking at the Roe v. Wade decision and the fact that this is going to also have downstream effects ongoing. And people are finally starting to recognize we've got no recourse. There's nothing we can do that we, if no matter how we vote, it's going to take decades and decades and decades to reverse the damage that this court is doing. And it's going to kill a lot of women in the process. Yeah. A lot of women are going to die horribly in pain because of ectopic pregnancies and bans on abortion. And this is, you know, and then we're going to lose a lot of fundamental rights and there's literally nothing we could do about it. And people are finally starting to figure that out. And that's where I was in 2016 was recognizing we are on a course from which there's almost certainly no deviation without multiple black swan events. And my book talks about a little bit is the fact that Biden as president now took the black swan event of COVID, which killed 235,000 people in a very short period of time, while the Trump Trump administration fumbled it, fumbled the issue badly. And that's the only reason why we have something of an interregnum right now. Yeah, I agree. I I think you're right. Um, Almost like if you were a religious person, you would think it was a some sort of theological moment or something like that. <laughs> um, so I want to talk about all the all the now later in the in, in the second part because I have some thoughts as well. But I want to go. I want to get into the guts of the book because I've been thinking a lot, really, about the Civil War. Oh, go ahead. So there is one thing, and I just want to jump back real quick. The mm-hmm. book, the the first, there's quotes sprinkled throughout the book. Oh, the, the, great. The quotes are great. Um, and the very first quote in the very first chapter was Barack Obama pointing out that Trump was a symptom of a bigger problem and not the actual cause. And I think that we that's the reason why the book doesn't title doesn't point at Trump. It points at the GOP. This is a systemic issue and not limited to just one really bad right-wing populist candidate with, you know, the brain of a squirrel. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. And I, it, it, it's right to do that. And you you talked about the way that the system is rigged against basically democracy and certainly the Democratic Party as currently constituted. You know, when you have a senator from, you know, Wyoming has two senators and has barely a million people, if it even has that many, and California has two senators, um, that doesn't make any sense. Like, and then you have the whole electoral college business where now we have a Supreme Court where a number of uh, of those justices were put there by presidents who did not get the majority uh, of the vote for president. So it's it's a minority within a minority that's controlling and the system 
is sort of rigged to keep it that way. In college, we used to play this game, this card game, drinking game called Asshole. And I forget the rules of it, but the way that it worked is the lower you got on the totem pole, the more the deck was stacked against you. And it was harder and harder to win. And, you know, the GOP in the game of asshole that is U.S. electoral politics, the GOP is right now on top, even though they don't have the numbers. They just don't. And their their vision of this, you know, straight white male patriarchal system is dying. I mean, it's just simply not going to happen without lots and lots of deaths, um, which maybe is the point of all this, you know, the, the, the overturning of Roe and stuff like that. OK, I want to start back at the at the at what I think. And, and, and it seems like what you think, too, based on the book, where this all began, which is back in the Civil War, especially since the insurrection. Um, I said that the insurrection was the worst attack on our democracy since Booth shot Lincoln. And I think that that one event, Booth killing Lincoln, totally flipped the script and, and has fucked us um, many generations later because of what, what came after. I think Lincoln was going to had a vision for how to reintegrate the South and how to do it in a way that made sure that freed slaves were taken care of at, you know, and protected by the federal government, et cetera. And that obviously didn't happen. So... One of the things at the beginning of the book, you talk about the election of 1860 and how it felt like now, like you have this minority group of very powerful people who are fighting and railing against inevitable change in, you know, the slave owning South. And I feel like that's, I mean, would you agree that that's similar to what's happening now with these, the MAGA folks? Yeah, I mean, the, the, one of the big points of the book is that the Republican Party today is the Democratic Party of 1860, which is a collection yeah. of white Southerners, white landed rich Southerners uh, who hold views that are antithetical to the rest of the nation, imposing their will upon the rest of the nation. And I, the where we're going uh, with Supreme Court decisions is very much uh, reminds me of Dred Scott and the Fugitive Slave Act of 1793 yeah. and 1850, which is allowing the South to spread its tendrils out to the rest of the nation to make the rest of the nation like the South. And that was ultimately intolerable to the North. And what's But what's ironic is that the North really didn't have any intention of ending slavery when Lincoln yeah. was elected. It was the South that freaked out, overreacted, and opened fire on uh, Fort Sumter. But when we look at how we got here, you know, doing kind of root cause analysis, it's it's slavery and the failure of reconstruction set us off on this path for an empowered and embittered South to try and rise again and impose its will on the U.S. And the South and the Republican Party that we see today is the spiritual and ideological successors to the old south of 1860. Yeah. You write also in the book, and I'm glad that you do, you talk about the Compromise of 1877, which is when Hayes, uh, they allowed, um, was Hayes, right, to, to be president mm-hmm. in exchange for Grant um, pulling the troops out of the south, sort of, you know, acquiescing to, to their will. And I think that yeah, another thing you mentioned, which I think a lot of people don't realize, is that um, blacks could vote in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War, and then those rights 
were just taken away. And if you look at, and we've been trying to find data from other Southern states. I think Louisiana is the only definitive one known. If you look at the number of black people in the South who were, um, you know, just by raw number in 1890, in 1900, and then in 1910, going by census data, the number of, of black Americans in the South who voted went down so precipitously that it was effectively nil in, in over yep. the course of 30 years. And this was by design. This was this was a white, you know, kind of minority almost imposed, like you said, imposing their will and disenfranchising people that were supposed to have the right to vote. Um, I just think it's something that people don't, you know, kind of realize. Yeah. And what we're seeing today is a little bit more sophisticated than that. We're seeing a lot more voter suppression that uses the same kind of principles used during Jim Crow, which was, oh, this is neutral on its face, like the grandfather clause or the literacy clause. Right. Um, but it was obviously affected black people because, you know, they wouldn't let black people get educations or yeah. wouldn't provide for them. Or, you know, uh, white people all had free ancestors and black people did not. So, you know, we're seeing that with some of the voter suppression laws, but gerrymandering. Uh, and I talk about this later in the book um, and playing with the way vote counting happens and with the way electors are placed and representatives are selected. You can fudge with that until you get the result you want. And a great example of this is is Hungary, right, where the Fidesz party only needs to win something like 23 percent of the vote in order to hold a majority of seats in the uh, Hungarian parliament. Yeah. And then you've got, you know, Viktor Orban, who's who is a bagman from Mogilevich and the mob. And then Tucker Carlson there just, you know, cheerleading him in, in this very overt fascistic way, which is disgusting. Um, that guy's super dangerous, I think. But okay, let's, let's stay with the civil war here for okay. a second. Okay. So going through the book, you really talk about, and, and this is not, it, it, it's not a text. It's not a, I should say to the listeners, it's not a, a textbook or something like that. It's not like 2000 pages long, but I think you do a really good job picking which examples to use about how, how the suppression occurred, what they did and the violence involved with it, because there was violence involved and there always has been in, in, in putting black people down. Anytime you have a minority rule like that, it almost inevitably winds up violent and the, you know, this sort of apartheid system, you have to have it that way because otherwise the majority is going to rise up and win because they're the majority. When did the party shift, do you think? I mean, because and by shift, I mean, obviously, in 1860, the Republican Party was the good guys because it's Lincoln and it's it's even if they don't want to end slavery, the, the abolitionist wing is clearly in the Republicans and not the Democrats. At some point over the next hundred years, that shifts and it go it. it you, you talk about in the book Hoover into FDR and Hoover being such a terrible president and so in, incapable as a Republican that people started to, to, to fall away and then go, you know, think, okay, maybe FDR isn't so bad. And FDR wasn't really all that great with race stuff. He was good with other things, but not so great with that, that, you know, it, they could plug their nose and vote for him. I mean, do you think it was then or or gradual or what do you think? It was it was gradual. It was a series of events of events. And my book points at some of them, one of which was uh, Hoover cozying up to uh, Southern whites um, while being absolutely dreadful on um, on the on the Depression. Uh, the next big bump that was a oh, my gosh. Right. That, that shifted things was 
President Truman, who was from Missouri, um, integrating the U.S. military and firing the Secretary of the Army because he would not carry out his orders to integrate the Army. This is 47-48 time period. Uh, then there was Brown versus Board of Education, yeah. right? And, you know, it was what Truman did, let me jump back for just a second, was bad enough that you, you started seeing the Dixiecrat Party being born with Strom Thurmond, who attempted to run against Truman in 48, I believe. You know, and then Brown versus Board of Education kind of pushed things back and, and centralized the game, them again, you know, because the Republican Party was was seen again as, as something the bad guys. So that pushed black voters. One of the other things that the book mentions is that there was a mass migration of black people in the United States towards northern states known as the Great Migration that occurred from about 1916 to 1947. As freedom of movement and transportation improved, Black people tried to escape the South and the living conditions, the poor pay and the abuse and the danger. And so the the North became uh, had more Black people. Whatever shifts there were in political alignment for Black people with parties, um, this was exacerbated as that migration happened. But by uh, 1960, you had Richard Nixon and John F. Kennedy running against each other. Kennedy, right before the election, Kennedy uh, was a vocal supporter for freeing uh, Martin Luther King. Richard Nixon suggested to Eisenhower that, hey, maybe we should pardon him, see if we can get him sprung from jail. Eisenhower said, nope. So Nixon said, okay, I'll, sh- I'll shut up about it. Besides, we need, the, we need the Southern voters anyway, which continued the shift. And then by 1968, uh, you know, by this, at this point, the vast majority of Black people were voting for Democrats. And Nixon, you know, it wasn't as, as lopsided as it is today, but it was something in excess of two thirds. And Nixon went all in on um, the Southern strategy and yeah. can, running a campaign saying, okay, well, you know, we need law and order. We need to put down these violent blacks and, you know, that this, they, the, we're going to store order, right? Um, and obviously this disorder, you know, is coming from black people, which played very, very well with the South. And that's where you started seeing the South really swinging towards Republicans. And over time, that effectively cemented Black people as a voting block for Democrats, but any party that Black people were voting for as a block that represented their interests to some degree at all was going to be antithetical to white Southern evangelicals who really wanted to keep segregation. So that's how well the Democratic Party had been that party, but now Republicans with Nixon were giving them what they wanted, which was at the time, they mostly wanted to, to fight desegregation all the way up through the 1980 election with Ronald Reagan. That's what he was talking about, right? When he spoke to white evangelicals during the during 1976 and 1980 campaigns, he wasn't talking to them about abortion or gay marriage so much. There was a little bit of, you know, well, oh, those gays, we got to, you know, they're icky. Um, it was primarily protecting white Southern schools, particularly religious ones, from being desegregated and keeping their uh, IRS tax-exempt status was the, was his big appeal to white Southerners. So, um, yeah, that, that theme of, of the Republican Party courting white Southerners for their votes by embracing implicitly or explicitly racist segregationist ideals 
has been the synthesis of that shift in parties from Republicans being the West and the Northeast to flip-flopping that and Republicans are now the party of the South and the rural Central Plains. Yeah, the, the places that don't have the money, um, basically. So the the all the economic centers, I remember during the, um, in 2016, they showed a map of which places Hillary won based on cities and economic centers and you know, Hillary won all of them, basically. Um, any sort of economic center or city or place where there were anything like that, the Democrats. And it was even more pronounced in the 2020 election where uh, population density became an even bigger predictor of who people were going to vote for. Wow. Um, okay, so I want to talk about modern times now a little bit or more recent times. But before we do, we're okay. going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Bryn Tannehill. Okay, we're back with Bryn Tannehill, author of American Fascism. Lots of interesting things in this book. There's a guy named Paul. I don't know how you, is it Wayrich? How does he pronounce his last name? Do you know? You know, I, I you don't know. know. I think it's Wayrich. Okay, so it's W-E-Y-R-I-C-H. This is somebody that I think most people, I, I really barely know who he is. And yet he has outsized influence over uh you know, sort of the the slow descent into fascism. So uh, talk a little bit about him and who he is and why he's significant. So Paul Weyrich was a conservative Catholic who um, was really kind of the progenitor of the modern religious right and the modern Republican Party as it stands today as an institution that primarily exists to wage culture war rather than actual policy. Um, Weyrich was incensed by Roe versus Wade, um, which is interesting because it was only conservative Catholics who really cared about abortion back in 72, 73. Southern Baptists, the Southern Baptist Convention was supporting Roe versus Wade up until 1976, right? Um, and he came up with the idea of forming a conservative coalition of, of theocrats um, <clears throat> alongside uh, white evangelical types, in particular, uh, Jerry Falwell, right, who he went on to help Falwell form the moral majority, which was uh, an important political factor in 80 and eight, the 1980 and 84 elections, right, getting Reagan in place. But beyond just the moral majority, he helped found the Heritage Foundation and ALEC, right, two of the most powerful players in Republican politics in terms of acting as a culture war think tank and getting culture war think tank policies passed as legislation at the state level. And he was the power behind the throne. And he was the first to really recognize just how powerful white evangelicals could be as a political force. Because up until 1976 or so, 1980 or so, it had been kind of the American paradigm for religious folks that politics and religion don't mix. You, what you do on Sunday doesn't follow you as much. He broke that paradigm. He broke that guardrail and said, no, we want to interject religion into politics to the maximum extent possible. We want to make politics explicitly about religion. And if you look at what Jerry Falwell said about mixing politics and religion in 1968 versus 1980, he did it a complete 180. And, you know, to a great extent, that was the work of Weyrich. So 
we have him to thank for for where we are now. It's interesting I what you say about keeping the religion and politics separate because Jimmy Carter is a born again Christian. You know, he should be and I think was popular in 76 among that group and then they as you point out in the book um turned on him because, you know, he didn't do what what they wanted him to do, giving them the the protecting the tax break for the religious schools mostly. So there was that. Yep. And Jimmy Carter was more popular relatively than other Democrats among um, what would be termed the religious right today. But no, he was not supportive enough of tax breaks. He wasn't, by 1980, he was insufficiently conservative on uh, abortion. He was in, he was, uh, he was not going hard enough on gays, right? Uh, if you remember that 77 to 80 time period is the heyday of, of Anita Bryant and the Save Our Children campaign. Carter more mostly stayed out of that. You know, so that was Carter. By the time Ronald Reagan came around, he effectively institutionally captured um, white evangelicals, lock, stock, and barrel. And that was in great part due to Weyrich and Falwell and the other founders of the moral majority whipping the base, issuing agitprop, um, and Reagan going ahead and absolutely embracing when he spoke in front of evangelical crowds in the South, speaking very highly about religious freedom and uh, using a lot of code words to describe, yes, I want you to retain your IRS tax exempt status when you have schools that religious schools that don't allow any black students in. You know, the Supreme Court eventually uh, said no. Um, yeah. and, and, uh, they were forced to, uh, these schools remain effectively segregated even to this day, but, um, you know, that's during Reagan's first term, the white evangelicals turned to, um, continue to focus on that for a while, but eventually gave up once they, they realized it was a lost cause, but then they started turning their focus more to abortion. It's interesting to bring up Reagan because I, he's another one I feel doesn't get the proper due for how awful he was as a, as a president, as a leader, and how um, divisive he was for the country. Even though at the time he see, you know he got he was so popular and got so such a high percentage of the vote, won so many states and stuff like that. I mean, his idea that government is bad and can't um, it, that is that government is the problem, I think, is an insidious, awful idea. That that is it makes no sense on its face, and it 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 creates this situation where people don't trust the government. People think that the government is separate from them. When in a democracy, the government is just us. We are the government. That's one thing he did. And then the AIDS crisis was the other thing he did by by his mishandling of that. Um, definitely because of his views uh, on the gay community and Nancy's views on the gay community. I think was a, you know it was an atrocity. So this is a guy who, um, not and the economic stuff, which was also awful, that trickle down that even H.W. knew was was a load of horseshit. Um, I, I think Reagan, 50 years from now, 100 years from now, if, if we're all still around and if there's still historians ranking presidents, um, Reagan's going to move down, down, down in the ranks, I think. He's just a just a, failed to do what what the leader of the American people you know, should be doing. Okay, here's a quote from your book. Now we're moving past Reagan into the 90s. You say, um, most Republicans in Congress had stopped playing the democracy game in the 1990s. 
preferring a scorched earth winner takes all approach to governance. So I think that's that's really sums up the problem with with the way politics works in Congress on the legislative side. Because if you go back and look at the history of the country, the word compromise is always there, especially in the, even in the run up to the Civil War, when presumably uh, the two sides were really at, at, at odds to such a degree that they were willing to go to war with each other. They were still willing to compromise, you know, the compromise of 1850 and the Missouri Compromise, and the compromise of 77. There's so many compromises. But in order to compromise, you have to have two parties that are willing to do that, that both value the, the system and, and the institution of democracy and of the government above everything else. And I think starting with Gingrich in, in, in the mid 90s and McConnell took that baton and boy, did he run with it. It's just all about obstruction now. It's not about compromise. It's about, you want to do this? Great. We're not even going to vote on it. We're going to do nothing. We're going to sit here and do fuck all. And that's what we're going to do. And I think it's, I, I think that that attitude is antithetical to democracy and is, is a major problem in, in, in what we're seeing now. So one of my favorite quotes in the book is a quote from Gingrich, and it comes from his 1978 campaign. And he was one of the first Republican conservatives to get a seat in the House, right, which was in 1978. And he told his audience, we are in a war, a war for power. And during the 90s, uh, 92, 94, 93, he was telling, no, we, the Democrats are the enemy. You cannot make deals with them. We are here to destroy them, not to cut deals with them, not to get governance done. We are here to destroy them, take power, and impose our vision on the nation. And that was, you know, that, that was kind of the beginning and maybe the end of the breakdown of normal American governance because compromise became impossible because one team – you know, there's normally um, unspoken rules that you don't break, right? That you you don't, yes, you could do this, but you don't do it because that's unfair. That breaks democracy. That invites gaming the rules in ways that, you know, allows majoritarian or even minoritarian tyranny, right? You know, McConnell refusing to hold votes on judges by Obama, and he probably will, you know, uh, after 2022, likely Democrats don't hold on to the Senate, but there's all kinds of little unwritten rules that you don't break. Um, and we're seeing this comp with with Congress critters like Marjorie Taylor Greene, rule, unspoken rules of decorum that yeah. you're not supposed to break. And basically, Gingrich said, we're not going to follow any of the old rules. We're going to stop playing the democracy game. This is a war for power, not about governing the country. And that was a fundamental breaking point. Even Reagan could craft compromises, right? You know, whatever we want to say about Reagan and his faults, he would still work with Tip O'Neill and hammer something out so that yeah. everybody, everybody got something they wanted, but not not everybody, no one got everything they wanted. Or, you know, like the uh, the immigration uh, reform. Right. That, that was kind of a compromise of, hey, you get some immigration stuff. I get more dollars for space lasers. Right. Kind, <laughs> kinds of things. Yeah. No, it's it, I think we're going to title this episode The Democracy Game. OK, so good. That's that's what we're going to do. OK. Um, in 1999, I was working for the Associated Press and I went to I think it was in January of 99. I want to say I went to an event called Unity, which was um, you had the 
uh, National Association of Black Journalists, Asian American Journalists Association, Hispanic American Journalists Association, Native American Journalists Association. Each of those groups had their own conference every year, but every five years they would have one big one and it was called Unity. And this one was in Seattle and everybody was at this thing. McCain, everybody who was running for president was there. Um, I was on a buffet line and Jesse Jackson was next to me. He's like 6'4", by the way. He's very tall. He doesn't, really? yeah, yeah. I was like, oh my God, he's tall. Um, John McCain. I remember him being really inspirational when I was a kid. And like, I was nine years old in the, in the 1984 campaign. So I remember him just being really inspirational. So yeah, right, he's, go ahead. He's inspirational. Um, McCain was there. He stopped by our booth. And uh, Al Gore was there. And Bill Bradley was there. And W was not there. And there was kind of this hue and cry among the journalists of this thing. Why isn't this guy here? He's running for president. And then he was actually in Seattle, but he wasn't coming to this thing to, you know, to pay kiss the ring of these journalists and the, you know, who would have some sort of influence over him. And through one door, unannounced, door opens in the front of the hall. He walks in, surrounded by people, literally walks snakes through the convention center. Everybody flocks to him like he's fucking Elvis. He goes out the back door. And I thought to myself, that guy's going to win. That's it. He's this is over. I don't even know what anybody's. It just was very clear to me in that moment that he was going to win. What do you think of, uh, of W? Because you write about him a little bit in, in the book. <laughs> the, the, the W quote in the book is <laughs> might have been my favorite, actually. <laughs> Which one? There's two. No, the one where he misspeaks and says he's the one doing the evil or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, it's funny that they accuse Biden of, of being uh, senile. It's like, no, 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 no. W produced way more malapropisms and uh, verbal gaffes than Biden has. And they're funnier, too. Yeah. Um, so W came, fr- to some extent, W believed his kinder, gentler bull yeah let me put it this way look at the difference between how barack and michelle obama treat w and and how they treated mccain um you know and how they treat trump (laughs) w was a terrible politician he had terrible ideas and with with his vice president and carl rove played some extraordinarily bare-knuckled politics but at the end of the day, at a personal level, he wasn't a monster, and he yeah. had some respect for the rules of democracy. You don't see W cozying up to Trump, right? And right. Trump freaking hates him, and the modern Republican Party hates him because you know he's, there's the, the meatloaf. So I would do anything for love, but I won't do that, right? Okay, you know W as a politician would do anything for love, but he wouldn't quite go to the level of he wouldn't go to the level of Trump and I think ethically at some point even he has limits and he wouldn't go the authority super authoritarian right-wing populist route this isn't this you know this might sound like a defense of Bush no he was a terrible president he was terrible to LGBT people he uh he was to some extent you know getting revenge for his dad on Iraq yeah. Uh, let us down an incredibly destructive path. He got my uncle killed. I have, I have no luck. My uncle died in Iraq. Oh my goodness. Um, yeah, Colonel Dominic Barragona. Um, and 
you know, so I have no real love for the man, but from a, what do you call it? An objective positioning, objective position. He was a terrible president, but he wasn't a monster and he wasn't a full-blown full fascist, right? Yeah. And, at the, and I think the, the, the way the Republican Party treats him today is sufficient evidence of, of that view. Yeah, it's interesting. He's, I don't think he's a racist either, which probably is one of the reasons why they don't like him. I think that, um, you know, even with the Iraq war, obviously it was a catastrophically awful decision, even in real time. I think people knew that it was the, just a terrible move, but I think he you did know, it because he really thought that it was going to help the, the situation. I don't think he did it to make money or this. I really do think that in his limited intellectual brain there, he thought that it was the right move for the country, but you know, he just was you know, wrong. The, 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 the closest W ever had to a Ronald Reagan moment, you know, where Ronald, you know, Ronald Reagan during the 84, well, there you go again. Right. <laughs> Um, it's a good rating. His moment, you know, uh, when uh, W was, was said, well, what what about those people that, um, oh, God, I'm forgetting the name, uh, the people that, that lynched a black man, right, by dragging him behind a pickup truck, you know, Prescott was like, why weren't you tougher on them? And W has come back and says, we gave two out of three of them the death penalty, the other one has life in prison, what more do you want us to do, right, it was kind of, it was kind of an effective comeback. To that, that was the closest W ever came to just, you know, a, a, a smackdown, you know, on on the facts. And I, I don't think he's particularly racist, but he went down campaign paths sure. that definitely appealed to them. But one thing I'd really like to point out is that until Trump, you know, until until maybe the Tea Party, uh, the Republican Party the leadership of the Republican Party wanted to keep the absolute religious nutters at arm's length. It's yes, please vote for us. Thank you for all the con campaign contributions. But, you know, I'm not going to give you unfettered access to the White House. I'm not going to give you unfettered access to U.S. policy. Trump changed that. Yeah. Yeah, he did. And um, even W as even W as, as a Southern Baptist didn't give the kind of access to the White House that uh, that the that the right wing conservative evangelicals and Catholics wanted. Uh, Paul Weyrich died in 2006, bemoaning the fact that he didn't have enough access and 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 believed the culture war was lost. Yeah, would that he were right. Um, another thing in your book that I thought was really interesting that I had not a connection that I had not made is when the Soviet Union fell in '91 on Christmas Day in '91, which seems significant. That was a time when when the the Republicans, the, the more religiously Republicans, looked towards Russia as allies in this sort of white Christian, you know, group, where the the idea was sort of um, sprung by people like Dana Rohrabacher that we can come together and this idea of uh, white Christian religious theocracy, for want of a better word, can transcend national barriers. And I thought that was interesting because I spent a lot of time, as you know, on my Twitter feed and elsewhere, screaming about uh, the Russians and the Republican Party and this and that. And obviously, a lot of them are there because they've been blackmailed or they're being bought off or whatever horrible reason. But that's a reason that's that's different. You know, that that's a reason that some of these guys had, I think, for getting involved with the Russians in the first place was 
religious in nature. It doesn't make it any better. In fact, it makes it worse in some in some degree. But that's something that I did not. I just didn't think about it that way. So, thanks for pointing so, that out. So, yeah. Um, do you mind if I delve into that just a little bit deeper than actually is in my book? Because I thought it was a little bit please, overkill. Please do. So I was raised Mormon. Obviously, did not take. Um, <laughs> You know, um, but when the Soviet Union fell and it was obvious that the Soviet Union was falling, going to church, there was lots and lots of whispers about this is going to be fantastic. They're all atheists and they're, they haven't been allowed to have religion. They, they didn't know enough about, you know, the Russian Orthodox Church to understand. No, still deeply rooted within Russian culture. You know, oh, we're going to go over there. We're going to convert, man. This is going to be the best missionary field Ever with all these people just yearning for God and and, there, and a vacuum and we're gonna fill it, and white evangelicals who in a lot, you know, to 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 use use an express uh, aphorism, I think white evangelicals are basically just Mormons with rabies. Um, <laughs> uh, if you look at their views, it's just you know, yeah, okay, it's just taking it two steps, ramping it up several levels, and white evangelicals saw it the same way. And that's why you saw in 1997, 96, the formation of interfaith groups trying to work with Russia. That's why you saw, you know, the World Congress of Families, which really started out as kind of a conservative Catholic, Mormon, white evangelical, plus a Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox group to coordinate religiously across national boundaries, right? It's kind of almost a, a UN for white Christian denominations. And this organization has continued to wield extensive powers, kind of not because they throw tons of money around, but because they coordinate actions, right? And over time, they have been very, very much dedicated to limiting access to abortion, birth control, and over in more recent years, they have made anti-LGBT stuff their primary focus, right? And they're also, you know, anti-in vitro fertilization, anti-surrogacy, and they see themselves as we are defenders of the faith, we are defenders of Western tradition. They have always, since the very beginning, had a very Putinist and Duganist, if you're not familiar with Alexander Dugan, uh, Putin's Rasputin is, is, is kind of his nickname, who has looked for cultural dominance as a way to expand Russia's sphere of influence to brand themselves as the anti-Muslim defenders of white Christendom and white babies and maintaining white birth rates enough that we won't be overwhelmed by the, the brown hordes, right? And, you know, Viktor Orban has bought into that lock, stock, and barrel. And there's, there's a damn good reason why World Congress of Families conferences traditionally get held in Russian strongholds like Moscow or St. Petersburg or Salt Lake City or uh, Hungary, or I believe a few years ago it was Moldova, and it's also has a also held conferences in Belarus, I believe. So this there is coordination, and there's a darn good reason why American religious conservatives have been so consistently positive about Putin. And if you the book includes a quote of that basically says, okay, yeah, he kind of abandoned democracy. But getting rid of all those gays, absolutely worth it. We should emulate this. And that's kind of, you know, and that was from 2006, 2007, 2008 time period. Yeah. Um, and now we see that exact same thing. And that that was at that point, that was just like 
conservative right-wing politicians that were deeply embedded with the right-wing conservative Christendom and, you know, ultra-conservative Christians in the evangelical world. Now it's on Tucker Carlson who, you know, whenever he goes on TV, you know, an hour later, it's playing again on Russian TV yeah. as. Yeah. I, the, the idea of, of the Mormons going to, to Russia to try to convert them is, is funny because if you know anything about Russian history and it was the ninth century, sometime in, in the middle ages, um, the Russians were were depaganized, and there was a moment when they had to d decide what religion they were going to be. So they had emissaries from, you know, Christianity, Judaism, and, and Islam come, and, and the uh, the Muslims came, and they said, you know, Allah and this and that, and all you have to do is, you know, you pray today facing Mecca, and you don't drink. And the Russians were like, "Don't drink, goodbye, get out." And that was the end of it. I mean, this is this is true. This is like a real thing. So there's no fucking way that any any religion that bans <laughs> drinking is ever, ever, ever going to take hold there. It's it's absolutely a deal breaker. Um, so, so you know that that's pretty funny. Um, thank you for for all of that. I think it's a it's an interesting you know way to look at it. And again, this is a global fight. This is a global. This isn't just an American thing that's happening. The 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 fight against fascism is happening everywhere on the planet right now. I mean, as uh, made obvious by Putin invading Ukraine. I mean, that's the most obvious and, and, and egregious fight from, you know, between democracy and fascists that we have. And I, you know, maybe it makes people see it a little more clearly. I don't know. Anyway, back to your book. You talk a little bit about the Terry Schiavo situation and how that was weaponized. And I thought it was interesting because, you know, Terry Schiavo was um, a woman who was in a coma for years and she was brain dead and the, her husband wanted to pull the plug and let her die. And the parents didn't want that to happen because they wrongly believed, mostly because of faith, that she would wake up one day and be okay, even though every doctor that looked at her said, no, her she's brain dead. It's not happening. And uh this was turned into a huge political cudgel at the time where, you know, HW and these sort of more more old school Republicans had to kind of pretend to care about this. And uh, but the way that you talk about it in the book is that it's an emotional issue. It's, it's, it's an issue that they just took the 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 um the facts of the case and twisted them and perverted them and weaponized them to get people riled up. And that seemed to be almost a template, I thought, reading the, the part in the book for what they're, they do now, like all the fucking time with all of this stuff. I mean, certainly all the, the anti-abortion crew is, is you know, well-versed in this. I remember when I lived in New York City, there was some wackadoo lady that just, just all she did was hang out in the park with a picture of a, of a fetus screaming and yelling, you know, because they really think that that's what abor the abortion is really just, here's a cute little baby and let's kill it. And that's not what it is. And it's not what it means. And, um, but it's more, it's more emotionally, I guess, enticing to certain brain types to believe that. And these people know it and they just feed the monster. So, um, yeah, I just thought it was and a prototype. I, I think, I think, yeah, absolutely. You're correct. And that was kind of my point was that is the template. That is the prototype. That is the, uh, way that the right wing news has gone. There's absolutely, you know, I, I hate to say it, people are making life and death decisions for people in, you know, regarding end of life care every day in America. This was in some ways a very unremarkable case other than right wing religious parents decided that they were going to fight this 
tooth and nail for a woman who had no hope of meaningful recovery after being in a coma for 15 years. Point out, um, the husband was right when they did the autopsy on her after her death. Uh, she'd lost 90% of the gray matter in her brain. There was there was no there was no function. There was there was no nothing was going to happen. Uh, there's no hope of rehabilitation. But now we see that in the modern you know, Fox News cycle, which there's, you know, it's Hunter Biden's laptop. I don't I don't even follow that, but I know it's bull, right? There's nothing to it. It's a Hunter Biden this and Hunter Biden that. Or it's Dr. Seuss. Hey, we're going to get, you know, a, we're going to get four days of wall-to-wall Dr. Seuss, oh right? Yeah. Or, or Mr. Potato Head or <laughs> Canadian Truckers. M&Ms. Or, or M&Ms or what's another good example or news that isn't even real, Wall-to-wall news about how schools are putting in litter boxes for kids who think they're furries, which isn't true. Though the synthesis of that story was that one high school had a veterinary vet tech program, and there were kitty litter boxes in the vet tech program area because they had cats that the students would practice on. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, you know, you know. Okay, splint the cat. Okay, you know. Uh, take the cat's, you know, blood pressure, right? It's, it's stuff like that, you know, but it's all agitprop and yeah. it's all designed to keep people and CRT. Great example, trans yeah. kids, trans athletes, like they, they passed a law in one particular state. I think it was Tennessee where they identified precisely one transgender student athlete in the entire state. Right. Might've been Utah. There was a, there, maybe it was a similar one, but the, the governor of Utah all like that. The governor of Utah is a Republican, had a really nice statement about it where he said, I looked at this. The numbers are absurd. Like this law affects three people and it's it's, you know, and uh, we're basically targeting people that need to be protected. And it was actually heartwarming to to have a Republican politician actually say something that was legitimately compassionate and and true. Um, and I sort of fell I fell out of my my seat in a way. So, yeah, but it, yeah, my, my point being that, yeah, Shiavo was was absolutely the template for what we see now, which is cycles of agitprop that have little to no basis in reality that distort the facts. All it is there to do is get people really, really angry and motivated to vote for Republicans so that they can do culture war stuff. Yeah, yeah. And, and they keep doing it and people keep falling for it. And the media keeps pushing it, too, which I think is a huge I, all I do on this podcast, I feel like, is real about how the media just sucks and has failed. But <laughs> I, I, I'll spare you that. But um, let's get into now the the kind of where we are now. Um, you you write in the book, and I'm I'm sort of half quoting here: "Creeping permanent minoritarian rule is insidious. The fall from democracy is slow and deliberate. It's not loud and explosive." I think that this is a really important way to look at it. You've studied these these regimes and how they fall. Once democracies fall, they they're done. They don't come back. It's, there's not really a lot of of historical uh, precedent for democracies being revived. Maybe in France, I don't know. Like a democracy like like this one that survived for this long, if it falls, is unlikely to return. You know, anytime soon. So. I have this show that I'm doing now on Friday nights with my friend LB called The Five Eight, and she introduced this idea to me about left of boom, boom, and right of boom, which is basically boom is the event, whatever this horrible event is, whether it's the a nuclear explosion or the, the asteroid hitting or whatever. And in this case, it's about fascism and, and fascism taking hold in the United States 
do you think we're at boom? Do you think we're left of boom? Do you think we're right of boom and it's too late? What's your take? So I don't think there's a boom. Um, mm. And, you know, I would say that the best analogy for the United States is Hungary. And I talk about this quite a bit in Chapter 10. You know, Viktor Orban elected, I'm trying to remember, I think he was in power 2002 to 2006, out of power from 2006 to 2010. I could be, I could be wrong on the dates, but I know that 2010 he returned to power and it wasn't until 2020 that he used COVID to give himself supreme dictatorial power forever. There was a 10-year interregnum of at least pretending to be a democracy, even though functionally there was no way for opposition parties to win in Hungary, none. Um, And the book discusses a lot of the tactics, techniques, and procedures that Orban used, which some of them are very applicable to the United States today. But the way he used power and the kinds of targeting he did and the kind of agitprop are very familiar. There's a reason why people who yearn for a theocracy, who yearn for a strongman, love Hungary. We've mentioned Tucker Carlson. We should also mention Rod Dreher. We should mention all. We should mention the leadership of the Republican Party, which is hosting CPAC. I was going to say CPAC in Budapest. Budapest. Hungary is where we're going. And the if you look at what Hungary has done to LGBT people, uh, if you look at what they're doing to women's rights, if you look at the fact that they have banned gender women's and gender studies classes throughout the country, you can see kind of this slow creep as one bite at a time of freedom, academia, civil rights, human rights, women's rights is just chomped away at until you have a glorious country where being LGBT is impossible, getting an abortion is functionally impossible, elections are impossible, the cronies of the strong man own all the industry and the media, and the, and the strong man is a billionaire who is a billionaire primarily because he is the strong man. It's, it's, and Russia is you know, hungry plus 10 years, right? Yeah. Um, which, you know, you mentioned these, these kinds of democracy is rarely restored. And I'm, there's only a few examples I can point to and, on, and none of them are particularly applicable to the United States in a lot of ways. Yeah. In crucial ways. I mean, the other thing about Orban is that, you know, he's a, he's a tool of the, of the Russian mob. I mean, he, he, th- this is not something I'm inventing. This is one of Mogilevich's, um, you know, lieutenants testified in court about this, that, that Orban was a bag man. He would go and bribe politicians. So this is a guy who is intimately connected with, with the organized crime as headed by Russia, which, it, which, and so is Trump, you know, that t- to the point about how we're becoming Hungary, Trump is also, you know, like Orban in that way. He's, he has no political convictions of his own. And if anything, he's flip-flopped on his on what used to be his political convictions from back in the day, mm-hmm. certainly with things like abortion and stuff. Like Donald Trump, you know, if there were no abortions, I don't know how many kids he would have, but uh, it would be more than he does now. So, you know, it, it's, it, it is a, a good, um, what's the word, precursor or harbinger for what, you know, uh, what might happen here. So you write in the book, um, what can be done? And there, there's two things that you that you point out. The first thing is to safeguard, protect, and expand voting rights, which is basically, as I see it, um, 
fixing the system to make it more democratic and making sure that people could vote. I think, for example, we were talking about this, I think, before we turned the mic on in Texas, there are more Democrats than Republicans. And if everybody could vote, it would be a blue state. But the the Republican politicians in Texas are particularly good at suppressing the vote. They do every trick in the book, everything they can think of to, to screw with the vote. Things like here, the county is bigger than Connecticut. And there's only one place to go for the, you know, for the in-person, just stuff like that. Whatever they can think of to make it harder for minorities to vote, they will do it. And Texas is a place where the attorney general of Texas, Paxton, is under federal indictment for fraud. This is a guy who eventually will likely go to prison. And yet he's in charge of executing the law in the state of Texas. Nobody ever talks about this when he's on TV or anything. You know, I, I think everybody should always say the attorney general, comma, who is under indictment, federal indictment, comma, that should always be used, but it never is uh, another failure of, of, uh, of the media. So, um, you know, that's the first thing, protecting voting rights. What do you think we should do to that regard? And can it even be done at this point with, without the filibuster dying? Mm -hmm. And the answer is, is, and people don't like my answers, but I'm, you know, um, you know, I'm like that old logic puzzle. I'm the one that always tells the truth. Um, there, the window is almost certainly closed. Uh, there were some absolutely fantastic bills that would have addressed the, the problems with gerrymandering and voter suppression. Uh, and they died because the filibuster and mansion and cinema weren't willing to budge on it. Um, so that's dead. That's effective. We, we have missed the window. And the next time the Republicans come to power, they are going to seize power and they are never going to relinquish it. We can look at states where we have people who are saying, yes, I will absolutely overturn elections if I think they're fraudulent because we didn't get the results we wanted. Carrie Lake running for governor in Arizona. Great example. Swing state. We're seeing the same kinds of language in Michigan and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, right? Um, we're going to see Republicans in, in a position where they can overturn federal elections if they don't like the results, and they will. They're, they're absolutely yeah. signaling. So, and because we're going to probably lose the House or the Senate or both in 2022, the window to change something before we get permanent minoritarian rule is about to slam shut and we it, that that opportunity has been wasted yeah so yeah we i told you what to do you didn't do it well uh you used the word earlier but this is a fuck around and find out situation yeah no it's it it's scary the second thing you say is to you know arrest the criminals in the the trump administration who broke the law Clearly, Merrick Garland is is whether whether or not he's he's actually doing his job. I think probably he is. He's operating so slowly and so silently and with such a lack of urgency that by the time he you know finally gets around to indicting anybody, it's they're just going to get pardoned by whoever the president is. At, at, you know, at, at that time, it, it's uh, I, I did a I do fake ads on my podcast, and one of them was a a fake ad for. Um, the end of the world was coming and and the they were reading the seven seals you know from revelation and then the last man on earth is merrick garland and he finally pops out with an indictment <laughs> for somebody so um I, I i don't know what what to do about that now this is what i want to end with because i think it's I, this is the thing that i'm really afraid of in this country everybody has been so spoiled i think by growing up in a democracy and living in a democracy and 
as you say in the book, we've really only had a democracy since like 1964, where everybody can vote and participate and stuff like that. However, even in the last like 25 years, certainly in my in my adult life, the amount of protections for for uh, for people have expanded so much. I mean, especially for LGBT community, but for women, for minorities, it really has been much, much significantly better than it ever was before. So in many ways, I think all of this stuff that the, the Trump and the evangelicals, they're trying to, to, to be retrograde and to pull us back to a sort of more um, hidebound medieval kind of lifestyle that, that, that they endorse. But, you know, the majority of people in the United States, a significant majority of people in the United States do not want that. So when you have that situation and you have minoritarian rule, as you, as you put it, um, you know, what, what can you do? If I'm Sam Alito, if I'm one of these asshole um, Supreme Court justices who, who is actively voting to overturn Roe v. Wade, which, as you point out, and, and, and I've said before on this pod um, and elsewhere, all that's doing is, is hurting women. If women are going to die needlessly because of this asshole. That's basically what it is. If you have people like that on a Supreme Court and they're there for life, we're in a country where there are more guns than people. Someone's going to put two and two together and start taking matters into their own hands. That's the line that I'm afraid we're going to get to because we can expand the court, but there's other ways to, to do it. And, uh, you know, I'm by no means advocating for this. I'm afraid that this is going to happen. And if I was those guys, I'd be afraid. Similarly with the healthcare stuff, you know, the Republicans, all they're trying to do is making it harder to get healthcare, more expensive to get healthcare, Okay, you, you're going. People are going to die because they can't afford insulin or whatever. Like these things are real. And again, we're in a country where there's so many guns. It's easy to get guns. If I'm somebody in a position of power, and I'm at, and my policy position is I want people to die, I would be really afraid that there's going to be some sort of violence that that that's down the pike. Now, the last time we had this much concentrated wealth in the hands of this few people was during the Gilded Age. That was also a time when people, a lot of people got assassinated by anarchists, by leftists, whatever, you know, now they would be called Antifa, I suppose. But that was something that happened, and I don't think it was an accident. I think it's a correlation between wealth inequality and violence. And this is what I'm worried about. How likely is it, do you think, that things are going to get violent in some way? <laughs> You're holding up a book. What is it? When Men Rebel. So it's Why Men Rebel, written by Ted Gurr. He was one of the most influential scholars in my postgraduate work, and his entire thesis was that wealth inequality leads to revolution. He wrote yeah. that back in the 70s, mm -hmm. um, and it's still considered one of the seminal works on the subject. What do you think is happening? Do you think it's going to get violent, or do you think people are so fucking just given up, and, and, and there's, there's so much induced state of... Well, as long as the Kardashians are still on, everything will be fine. Like, I, I, I don't know. You know, I don't know. So it's going to, there's a lot of pieces in play here that tell me that we are going to see a really, really bloody insurrection. Okay. Um, you have the most writers who write about this, and this is where my fourth book is going, is talking about what the various end states for the US are. One end state is looking like Hungary, peaceable but suppressed and non-democratic and elections are just an anesthetic to keep the population. You know, it's Lucy promising not to pull the football away again, mm -hmm. right? You know, in order to have Charlie Brown not, you know, kick, kick her in the head. 
you know, the other option is that we get a soft dissolution. The United States is as blue states either pull away or the Supreme Court upholds states' rights and says, no, abortion remains completely legal and gay rights are completely legal in, in California. And that you end up, you know, with kind of a, a, you know, an 1860 scenario where you have red states and blue states with very, you know, very separate cultures and rights uh, with red states trying to push their values into, uh, but instead of instead of uh, a Dred Scott decision, you get a decision that's an anti-Dred Scott, which says, no, blue states get to be blue states, red states get to be red states. And um, if you if you hate living in a red state because you're treated as chattel um, and have no rights, just move to a blue state, which leads to an even greater bifurcation in the United States. I don't believe that's going to happen. Uh, red states believe that if they think abortion is mass murder of the innocents, they're going to do everything they can to continue to push to make blue states come into line with, with red states. But it's a possibility, just not one of the big ones. Uh, the other one is either is, is a hard secession where, red, where blue states go, you're brutalizing our citizens. This is intolerable. We have no say. We're out. That's extremely messy and complicated and is probably going to look something like the dissolution of the Soviet Union, even if peaceable, it's still going to obliterate the American economy and result in all kinds of nasty things like deciding who gets custody of the kids. And by kids, I mean the 5,000 nuclear weapons we still have in our arsenal, yeah. right? And the US military. Um, you know, But the worst case scenario is unlike Hungary, unlike other countries that have had a slow descent into com competitive authoritarianism, as I describe in chapter 10, is that you mentioned it? We've got 413 million guns for 333 million people. Yeah. Um, you have a Supreme Court that just that what we saw in Dobbs v. Jackson is just the first in what is going to be a long series of decisions rolling things back to about 1950. And yeah. the country has changed quite a bit since then, and people are not going to take kindly to that, that there is going to be blowback. How much of a blowback that is, I don't know. How far are red states going to be willing to push it to make blue states come into compliance to get rid of their uh, of abortion and LGBT people and voting rights for black people and you know uh, give the mad dictator the right to use military force against Mexico and put landmines on the U.S.-Mexico border? You know how how far are we willing to let it go? But the thing is is that you've got to recognize that three percenters and Proud Boys and other right-wing groups are, are already perfectly prepared to start the shooting and killing. But yes, you mentioned assassinations. That's one of my big fears as well. And I think that that would be the natural evolution of some kind of left-wing insurgency, would be lots and lots of targeted assassinations and cyber warfare. Yeah. Um, and that's, I unfortunately... I think that that's one of the most likely scenarios at this point, because we are being issued a series of Dred Scott style decisions. And we just saw the first one, but it's just going to keep for, coming for group after group after group after group. And it's going to, and Clarence Thomas is just, you know, I'm going to hate to say it, too fucking self unaware to recognize that, well, you don't just have to live with the decision. That's why Dred Scott tipped off the Civil War, right? Yeah. Um, that's why um, the Civil Rights Movement was a response to Plessy versus Ferguson. But this time, we're not going to have to wait 70 years.
for people to get pissed off and start taking matters into their own hands. There's the means and will and mechanism. And that unlike 1954, because white suburban women are going to be with, you know, LGBT kids or you who use birth control or might need an abortion or have a daughter who dies because she had an ectopic pregnancy at 16 and then bled out, you're going to see you're going to see blacks civil rights for black people didn't happen until white people some white people were okay with the idea and dedicated to it this next movement is going to have a broad spectrum of women and lgbt people and black people and other minorities in a coalition who are all mad as hell and not going to take it anymore and the thing is is generationally the people that are most upset about this are the people that fit into what is known as the military-aged males group when studying insurgency, right? Mm-hmm. It's Gen Z. Gen yeah. Z is losing everything. And somewhere, be, you know, depending on the survey, 10 to 15% of Gen Z identifies as LGBT. The other thing is, is that this is a minoritarian rule. There's an old saying by Mao and insurgencies that the population is the or the population is the ocean in which the insurgent swims. There's plenty of ocean of dislike of the government yeah. in which insurgents can swim. And that's why I think people don't understand that this is a powder keg that is going to go off. And the other thing is, is that unlike previous insurgencies, there's a model out there, which is ISIS or Al-Qaeda in Iraq where you use stochastic terrorism, where you inspire terrorist acts, which allows culpable deniability, which by the way, Brandenburg versus Ohio is absolutely fantastic for encouraging stochastic terrorism. Uh, Reap what you sow, bitches. Um, So, you know, we are going to see if if insurgency breaks out in the United States, it's going to be stochastic. It's going to use guns and vehicles and whatever is available, not explosives. Because uh, that's very tough to get a hold of, and, and the FBI and CIA monitor that very, very closely. But there's almost no regulation of firearms. There's no regulation of Ford F-150 trucks with reinforced frames, right? There's, if insurgency happens, it's going to be very, very tough to contain because of the conditions within the United States in terms of access to everything and the nature of the population, the nature uh, and the demographics of the population, and the fact of who's going to be pissed off and what they have access to and what the environment looks like. There is a very, very big ocean. uh, And that ocean of anger at the government is just going to keep growing as things get worse and worse and worse and worse. And people recognize that they have no viable legal options that it doesn't matter who you vote for things are just going to get worse well and that that getting worse could be lethal to you or to your kid or your wife or what have you and that's going to that's an explosive combination and there's a book behind me another guy that back in 2006 7 8 time frame when I was doing my forecasting work on this hugely influential built a model and I used it in my, my uh, postgraduate work, you know, the, to, to predict how, how ripe the conditions are for civil war and insurgency. And I, as I wrote my book, I thought, I'm, I'm feeling a little bit crazy here. 
you know, but then I went back to this, this author whose name escapes me, but his book's directly behind me and found that after I'd written my book, he'd taken the same numbers and same model that he'd used in 2006 on countries that we all agreed were unstable and had plugged them in the United States and showed a curve. And he said, yeah, we are at a point that is every bit as explosive as 1860. Wow. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, I don't even know what to say. It's scary, you know? And I think that the thing that people don't realize just in general, or they take for granted that, that there's always going to be democracies. It's always going to be, we're going to go vote for people and that the laws are going to protect the, the innocent and, 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 um, and be applied without prejudice and this and that. And uh, that's, that's also what's sort of being eroded right now, whether it is Merrick Garland just sitting on his fucking ass or whether he's doing that or not, the perception that that's, that he's not acting quickly enough. And then this, this business of these shitheads on the Supreme court. I mean, I tweeted yesterday that, you know, even the words Supreme Court now seem very, very like North Korean in, in nature. You know, we are the Supreme Leader. We are the Supreme Court. Well, you know, it makes you stop and think, are you? What do I care what Sam Alito and I mean, Clarence Thomas is a fucking joke. He's been a joke since the day he was uh, sworn in. I mean, we all know it. Uh, why are we going to listen to these guys? I mean, it, th there's a faith aspect, I think, in democracies where everybody has to believe in you know, the American experiment and in democracy itself, just like we have to believe in the money. The dollar has no intrinsic value. It's a piece of, of linen and paper. So if people stop believing in it, it loses value. And the same thing I think is true for, for democracy. So I do think, however, that we have some time left. I think, what is it now? It's May. We've got another, I don't know, we got six more months to turn this thing around. Flipping the, the filibuster by any means necessary, short of violence, I think is, is you know, we have to do it. We have to try everything that we can think of and get creative to get rid of the filibuster and pass these voting rights bills in the next six months. And I don't know if I don't know if the Democratic leadership has the imagination, the will or the ruthlessness to get it done. I, I just don't I don't I'm not optimistic about it, but the door isn't quite shut quite yet, I think. Yeah, it's going to take a black swan event, though. It's going to take a black swan event like somebody starting to get wise on the filibuster. It's going to take something Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito go out to lunch and a meteor falls on their table. Right. <laughs> and there's, you know, two immediate Supreme Court vacancies that, that Biden gets to fill before the Senate goes Republican. Right. That's that's the level of, you know, black swan needed to avoid going to the bad place. Um, yeah. I've already kind of I've you know, I've. People have talked to me about my book is like, this must have been hard to write. Like, yeah, it was. It took me four years to write it. But it was therapy because I had to go through the grieving process. You know, there was there was anger. There was grief. There was um, bargaining, which was the initial point of the book was I'm going to read everything I can on how do we get away from this. Yeah. And I looked at some really great uh, ideas. Right. Uh, Joseph Stiglitz, Nobel Prize winning economist, had some great ideas. But the problem I kept running into, and I point this out in the book, and you'll see that in chapters 10 and 11, is that there's no the, – um, the American system of governance prevents, actively prevents, the implementation of any solutions that might help us avoid going to the super bad place. And that's kind of – you know, I went through my, my bargaining phase, and at the end it came into a, well, you know, acceptance. You know, one of the, one of the more chilling but, you know um, – balls of steel moments that I've heard from a pilot on a cockpit recorder 
is an airliner that lost the control cables on its tail, and they lost control of the thing, rolled inverted, they're 60 degrees nose down inverted, heading into the ocean at 550 knots, and the pilot's last words on the black box were, well, here we go. <laughs> you know, and that's kind of kind of where I'm at with American democracy, is there's nothing I could do about it. The only thing is, is that I'm married to a Canadian, have three Canadian kids, and I've saved up enough enough that, that if we eliminate the 401ks, yeah, we can, in 2025, we could, I have an ejection seat handle. The vast majority of Americans do not have an ejection seat handle, and they're going to have to ride this one all the way to the scene of the crash. Canada's not going to, <laughs> it's not going to be the bulwark for democracy if, if, if America falls, though. I hope so. It buys so. me time. That's all it does is it buys you time as while America's having its having its meltdown. It's probably not in the middle of invading Canada, which, by the way, Candace Owens and Laura Ingraham both called for in order to liberate it from Justin Trudeau, which I don't know if you have. Do you have time? Yeah, go ahead. So that brings me to what eventually ends nasty little fascist, you know, totalitarian, authoritarian dictatorship uh, or single party rule? And the answer is something we can see right now in Russia and Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And I just alluded to it, which is these little uh, groups eventually drink their own damn Kool-Aid yeah. and commit suicidally lethal mistakes. In Putin's case, he surrounded himself with sycophants. And he let the corruption run wild and everybody was grifting off of the Russian military, right? So when they finally rolled out the Russian military, they, they thought it was going to be a victory parade. They thought Ukrainians wouldn't fight. They thought they believed their own hype. The Russian military was the greatest thing since sliced bread. They brought parade uniforms for the, for the march in Kiev that was going to happen 72 hours after the uh, invasion started, right? Literally, I've seen pictures of them taking charred uh, armored fighting vehicles with, you know, you know, Russian uh, parade dress uniforms in them, right, north of Kiev. And so Putin uh, made his decision based off of completely stupid information, uh, completely wrong information in a country where they had quietly gutted the military. You know, one of the funniest pictures I've seen is uh, of a shot down Russian helicopter and the one of the electronics boxes, they opened it up and they found a dead mouse and chewed on wiring in it, right? That's on brand, it's on brand, yeah. Right, um, unfortunately, after being shot down, the mouse did not make it, um, very sad. He was on but the Ukrainian point, side, yeah. You have to give him a state you know, aerial, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, my point being that eventually, these little nasty little regimes with nasty little dictators who only can stand to hear have yes men around them eventually do something lethally stupid, right? Um, another example that I think has some comparisons is Nicolae Ceausescu's Romania, which mm. fell in 1989, which they pursued the kind of anti-woman, forced yes, birth, take all the money and put it at the top and make everybody impoverished and turn us into a police state. And, you know, the, the, the reason now the, the comparison falls apart because the Romanian military 
and police, regular police, turned on the on the regime, which would be hard to imagine in the U.S. But you know, this eventually, when when the military stepped out of the way and the regular police stepped out of the way and said, "You can do whatever you want with the Stasi," not the Stasi. Um, they had their own secret police. I can't remember what the That's, Romanian one's called. Yeah, uh, it wasn't the Stasi, but uh, it was their equivalent of the Stasi. And the regime got snowed under under a popular revolution. But that was because they kept ignoring it and ignoring it, make things worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. You know, and you, you still remember haunting scenes of AIDS ravaged orphans chained to cribs because of what they were doing in the, in the forced birth policy. Right. So when I look at Candace Owens and Laura Ingraham and other people at Fox News trying to lay out a case for why the U.S. should both withdraw from NATO, but invade Canada. It's not hard to see a regime drinking its own Kool-Aid that has a base that is dumb as a bag of rocks because all they do is watch Fox News, that is convinced of our own superiority, is doing something as lethally stupid as invading Canada after withdrawing from NATO. So now we're at war with two nuclear armed powers and the rest of Europe, which at that point, the American economy absolutely tanks, right? Um, and thinking that Canada won't be, would welcome welcome us. You know, that Candace Owens talking about how Canadians would welcome us as liberators. Ooh, yeah, yeah. not good. Now, I, <laughs> I, I have a number of, of Canadian uh, listeners to the, to the podcast, and I have a number of, of people who read my, my, uh, my site and write in about it. And yeah, it, they're not going to welcome us as liberators. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's safe to say, you know, they want no part you know, of any you know, Canada wants to remain Canada. And, and, and I think is resents being uh, sort of this utopian uh, spot for Americans. However, if we do have a legit fascist overthrow, I think that that would change because there's going to be a brain drain in the United States where, you know, lots of people are going to uh, with means and, and with talents and, and stuff are going to want to get out. And uh you know, brain drains are never good. No, it's not good. The U.S. has a lot of brains. I think we can weather that better. Um, the one thing I want to point about living in a nasty little fascist state is that for most people, life is boring and normal, right? It's just you can't change anything. Now, for the people that are singled out, for particular LGBT people, and if you look at all of these accusations of being groomers and pedophiles, hmm. yeah, this in a fascist state, this is setting up a group of people for either uh, to make them disappear, to either have them leave, flee, go in the closet, or very, very bad things happening to them, right? Um, As an LGBT person, I'm extremely worried because the two groups of people that are going to be most affected by this are immigrants and LGBT people and women to a lesser extent uh, because mostly they're concerned with um, reproductive reproductive stuff and not all women um are able to have children whereas all lgbt people are on the table but still it's for most people the the one one writer that i really liked um and i cite them in my books is life is boring and stable for most people in a in a competitive authoritarian society but for the number for the people who it isn't it's hell it's it's roving gangs of pro-government thugs roaming around and beating 
gay people or kidnapping them and uh, either killing them, torturing them, cutting off body parts, or killing them by chopping them into little tiny bits like Chechnya. And that's one of the more terrifying futures I could see for the United States. And we've seen an upsurge in groups like Three Percenters and Proud Boys, you know, threatening violence over Drag Queen Story Hour or protesting, uh, you know, showing up armed uh, in anti-trans protests, right? These are these are the kinds of things that, you know, um, keep me up at night because yeah, it, that's... It's scary. And I think you have to look at it. I, I, I think that, you know, gay and trans have to be looked at in two different ways with this, because I think it's it's been socially acceptable to be gay for such a long time. Even I think most people are okay with it, even on the Republican side, even maybe on, on the evangelical side. I think trans has become the new what gay was 50 years ago, 70 years ago. And, and that's to me uh, is really the group that that that's the most at risk um, and, and that needs the most protection. And, you know, we, we have to as a society do that. I feel very strongly that societies are only as as good as they are in protecting, um, you know, the most vulnerable members of the society. And that's our job as certainly as a democracy. And if we can't do that, you know, it's a it, it, it portends a very scary future that I don't want to have any part of. Dis yeah. Disability rights activists that I know are absolutely terrified by what's coming as well, you know. Um, which they should be. That's part of what fascism does is it goes after it goes yeah. after LGBT people and disabled people just about first because they're antithetical to a fascist worldview of of what a country's great and glorious past looks like. You know, um, you know, Hannah Arendt, you know, mentioned that the Soviet Union and, and Nazi Germany had very similar views on people as uh, he, you know, uh, in terms of only having value as workers is, is he he who will not work shall not eat in the u.s we're perfectly content with he who cannot work shall not eat um but i think when it comes to the evangelicals only really pretended to give up on gay people it was just that after obergefell they moved on to trans people yeah. but it's i'm i'm not going out on a limb here and i'm telling you right now that the obergefell de decision will be overturned no later than July 1st, 2025. Yeah, it has I, an expiration date, and I expect it to be overturned within two years. I expect Texas to tr basically say we don't have to issue marriage licenses anymore because Dobbs v. Jackson indicates that it's no longer good law and we're going to challenge it, and they're going to succeed in that challenge. I don't care what Alito wrote. He wrote, oh, this, this doesn't say anything about Obergefell. But if you brought me a case, here's how I judge it. And then he lists like five criteria and mm. Obergefell would fail every one of those criteria, right? That he sets for whether or not Obergefell should be upheld. So no, he's clearly communicated, bring me a case, make these arguments, and here's what I'll do for you. Um, and if you read his dissents in Obergefell and uh, Bostock and Zarda and Harris, you'll see exactly how he'll go. Uh, and probably take the other justices with him. So yeah, trans people are going to get it in the teeth first. And a lot of the rulings against trans people are going to be used against LGBT or lesbians and gays next. But yeah. you know, you it's not hard with the with the groomer and pedophile narrative and treating anything LGBT as obscene. You know, it's not hard to envision Texas is already removing trans kids from loving supportive homes because 
the homes are loving and supportive of them as trans children. Yeah. Um, it's not hard to see Texas taking the next step of going uh, later, going after Lawrence v. Texas uh, and saying, okay, any, anybody, any child that is in a home with a lesbian or gay person will be removed because they're being exposed to unacceptable, obscene content in the home. Uh, and they're going to try that. They absolutely, they will try that. They don't want LGBT people raising children. And, no, no, they don't. Because even though it's you know, the logical. And then, and then, you know, and you can talk about all kinds of flashpoints, but okay. So they're going, they're starting to go after LGBT parents in Texas and pulling, taking children out of those homes. So an LGBT family moves to California. Texas says, there's a warrant for these people in Texas for endangering a minor because these minors were exposed to LGBT content in the home. Give them back. Does California say yes? Well, they're probably going to say no. And then SCOTUS gets to decide. And then based off of SCOTUS's decision, it's, well, how soon do we kick off the, the insurrection? Yeah. Or the secession. Which, by the way, I just described Tread Scott. <laughs> I know. I was going to say it's the fugitive <laughs> pregnant woman law. Or whatever. Or the, fr- or the, the fugitive, the fugitive transparent. Family. Yeah, yeah. It's it's ugh. history rhymes, I suppose. Um, this has been such a great conversation. Um, thank you so much for coming on. I, I I always like to end on a more hopeful note, but I I don't think we can. Uh, <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> my my ho- wife has joked. <laughs> my wife has joked that my book should come with a prescription for Wellbutrin and a court order to remove any guns from the house. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Elon Musk says, well, Butrin doesn't work. So we should listen to everything he says. He's so smart. Elon Musk. Um, okay. So where can we find you on the Twitter? Okay. It's at Bryn Tannehill, uh, B-R-Y-N-N-T-A-N-N-E-H-I-L-L. You can find my book, American Fascism at transgresspress.org or Amazon or Google. Um, you can also find my previous books on Amazon and at Jessica Kingsley Press. And you're you you have you, you write for Day Magazine now. You've got your got I, your go. Yeah, you, I write for Day Magazine, and uh, I write for the Los Angeles Blade, and occasionally for the Advocate. And if I uh, might be having something soon coming out at Religion Dispatches. Okay, so you're you're everywhere. Um, go check out her work. Super important. The book again is American Fascism. It's really really good. I encourage everybody to read it because we have to know what happened to us so that we can hopefully fix it. Bryn Tannehill, thanks so much for taking the time. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. It's been a pleasure. The Prevail theme song is by Matthew Fassa. Sofia Tereshenko provided the Russian introduction. Voice talent is provided by Tally Briggs, Signa Della, Stephanie St. John, Brett Petticord, Ryan Byrne at History Falls Apart, and me. Thanks to Allison Gill, Molly Hockey, Kanai Williams, and everyone else at MSW Media. Please subscribe to the Prevail website with updates every Tuesday, Friday, and Sunday. Your $5 monthly subscription funds the site and the podcast. Visit gregoliar.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. Drive safely. Don't forget to tip your server. Until next time, we shall prevail. W. Media.